Morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. It's good to be here together, and we're thankful for those of you that are joining us online this morning as well, as we have an opportunity to celebrate Jesus together. The name of our sermon series is Jesus Said What? Right? We talked about you have to say it like that. If you're going to be here, you have to say that Jesus said what? That's right. And what is this series about? This series is about some of the passages that may be uh, unfamiliar to us. There's a lot of Jesus' teaching, most of Jesus' teaching, that we cover again and again and again in the church. But there are a handful of passages that the publishers don't put in the kids' Sunday school curriculum because the things that are in there are challenging to understand. We look at what Jesus said and we say, what? And those are the passages that we're talking about in this series. And today, we're going to look at the passage, the phrase that drew the greatest reaction the first time we showed this bumper, and that is the phrase, hate your family. Hate your family. Sounds weird even saying it, right? Here in church on a Sunday morning, hate your family. It sounds weird, but in today's passage, Jesus is going to instruct us that if we want to be his disciples, we must hate our families. As a matter of fact, he's going to say, if you don't hate your family, you can't be a part of my family, the family of God. Uh, This teaching that we're going to look at is found in a whole section in which Jesus is asking people to do a cost-benefit analysis of being his follower in Luke chapter 14. So let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 26 through 33 together and look at what Jesus has to say about the cost of being his follower. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis is something that every business does when it makes decisions. What is the cost of moving forward with that decision? What is the benefit of moving forward with that decision? And do the benefits outweigh the costs if we move forward with that? And sometimes a cost-benefit analysis is done in a very formal way. But we also recognize we do dozens of informal cost-benefit analyses in the decisions that we make each and every day. Whether or not my wife and I are going to go out to eat after the second service today is going to be determined by a cost-benefit analysis, right? And, And if the benefit is that she would be happy with that, then almost any cost is worth it, right? It's going to be a quick cost-benefit analysis on whether or not we do that. When my kids were little, One day, I was raking up all of the leaves in our front yard, and I came up with this giant pile of leaves in our front yard, and suddenly my kids appeared with a couple of their friends, and they asked, Dad, can we jump in the leaves? I looked at those big puppy dog eyes they were giving me, and I said, sure, go for it. And so I went inside, and they spent some time out there jumping in the leaves, and I came back out a little while later, and they were gone. And the leaves were everywhere, all over the front yard. And so I started raking all of the leaves back up into a big pile. And no sooner did I get that giant pile once again made than my kids appeared and said, Dad, can we jump in the leaves? They weren't there for any of the raking. And then by magic, the moment that the leaves were back in a pile, they reappeared 
with their friends, can we jump in the leaves? And I said, absolutely you can. As long as when you're done, you rake all the leaves back into this big pile and then put it into all of those bags right there. They looked at each other and they looked at their friends. And my son said to me, Dad, can we ride our bikes? <laughs> right, what, what happened? They did a cost-benefit analysis and I added a new cost to the cost-benefit ledger and they said, oh no, that is not worth it. We are not moving forward in that particular situation. Now we live in a society in which people want all of the benefits without any of the costs, don't we? Right? We live in a society where people want all of the benefits without any of the costs. And to appeal to that mindset, sometimes Christians fall into the trap of presenting all of the benefits of being Jesus' disciples without ever giving people the cost that Jesus presents for being his follower. After all, if the goal is to get as many people in a room on Sunday morning as possible, if the goal is to get as many people to pray a prayer as possible, then the best way to hook people in, even if temporarily, is to present all of the benefits without any of the costs that Jesus gives us. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want us aiming at getting as many people in a room on Sunday morning as possible, and he doesn't call us to get as many people to say a prayer as possible. Jesus calls us to make disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is committed to the lifelong journey of becoming like their master. Someone who is committed to the lifelong journey of, bec of becoming like their master. Jesus isn't interested in getting people to make shallow decisions based only on a reading of the benefits without considering the costs so that they fall away because that seed falls in shallow soil or is choked out by the weeds that grow up around it. Jesus wants people who have fully considered all of the benefits of following him and all of the costs of following him and make sure that no one ever comes to him without understanding the costs of being his disciple. Uh, he uses a couple of illustrations to make this point in our passage today. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. L let's say I wanted to build a house. Um... More appropriately, let's say I wanted to hire someone to build a house for me. And I get all excited about that project. This is going to be great. We're going to build a new house. And I hire someone and we get some land and we get architectural plans and we dig out the foundation and lay the foundation and then I run out of money. And for years, my property just sits there with a foundation and no house on it. We have to come and live with you. Because we have nowhere to go at this point. Are we welcome? No, no, that's not a part of the sermon. Right? Because I didn't do a very good job of making a decision. I got enamored with all of the benefits. But I didn't bother to count the cost to see if I could carry it through. If I was really committed to carrying all of that through. In the story that Jesus tells here, the person who is building is mocked. 
But when someone makes a shallow commitment to Christ, looking only at the benefits without considering any of the costs, it's actually Jesus who is mocked in that situation as they fall away from him. So Jesus says, count, count the cost. He uses another illustration to make this same point. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. A delegation that goes to ask for peace isn't going to get peace for free in this situation, are they? You're in the kingdom, you've got your 10,000 soldiers, a king is riding against you with 20,000. You send out a delegation of peace, that's going to cost you something in order to get peace. And so you have to make a very careful deeply deliberate decision about whether you're going to pay that cost for peace or whether you're going to ride out with your 10,000 soldiers and take that other army on. Do you make that decision lightly? Dear me, no. Right? Dear me, no. Because if you lose that battle, you and your people may wind up in dungeons altogether starving to death. You as the king may have your hands and your feet cut off as a sign of your submission to a superior king. Your people may be hoisted up on pikes and crosses all across your land. Do you make that decision lightly? Absolutely not. You deliberate seriously about the benefits and the costs of this decision to make sure you're committed and can carry this out. Jesus says that this is a heavy thing to be my follower. And I want people to consider all of the benefits, absolutely, but also all of the costs. That, that's why here at Friendship, you're never going to see us encourage people to make a decision for Christ based in an emotional moment. Right? You're never going to see me up here crying big crocodile tears with emotional music getting played in the background, Jimmy Schwaggart style, in order to try and get you to make a commitment on the spot. Because that's not what Jesus teaches. He says, no, thoroughly consider the benefits, thoroughly consider the costs, if you're going to be my follower here. So what are the costs of being Jesus' disciple, you guys? Cost number one that he lists in this passage, hate your family. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, some of you are horrified by this. And others in the room are saying, I've got this one down. Hate my family, check. I've been doing that for years. I must be a disciple. It might be that you're misunderstanding a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. Could the Jesus who said, honor your father and mother, then genuinely say, I want you to hate your mom and dad? Could the Jesus who gathered a little child to himself on more than one occasion and showed them greater honor and respect than the society around him did, then say, I want you to hate your kids? Could the Jesus who said, I want you to love enemies, be reconciled with brothers and sisters, people will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, then say, I want you guys to hate your families. Yes, that's what it says right there. It's an easy question to answer, right? We just read it. That is precisely what he said. But, but, 
when Jesus uses the word hate in this section, he is using it differently than we use it within our society. When we talk about hate for someone, we're usually talking about malicious intent, a desire to harm another person. That is the way we use that term hate, a desire or actions that seek to harm or, or, or seek to do uh, damage to another person. That is not how Jesus is using the word hate in this particular section. Jesus is using here a hyperbolic idiom. What? Right? Th- this is a phrase that has a poetic sense to it, and one in which the one that the scripture uses eleven different times. This love-hate comparison. And every time that it's used within the scripture, hate is not meant to convey to us a malicious desire to harm another, but instead this is used as an idiom, a phrase that is meant to communicate a strong choice of one thing over another. I'm going to say that again. It is a phrase that is meant to communicate a strong choice of one thing over another, a poetic way of saying that. So that if I were to be living in this day, and I were, to, I were asked to choose between my wife and my puppy. Right? I, I love my wife. I love my puppy. I, I think when we first got the dog, I came and presented it. My wife got a dog, a little dog. Ugh, so annoying. Da, 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 da. Of course, the first time the puppy cuddled up with me and I got the little puppy kisses. Of course, I fell in love with the puppy. Now I come home and I get down on the floor and the puppy gives me kisses. And I, yeah, yeah. So, right, I love, oh, I should stop with this. Right? I love the puppy. But if someone asked me to make a choice, what do you value more? Who do you value more, your wife or your puppy? Right? Who do I value more? Right? Who do I choose in that scenario? I choose my, yeah, thank you. I choose my wife. She'll be so proud. Yeah, I choose my wife. And you guys, it's not like the puppy's here and my wife is here, right? The, the difference between my wife and the puppy is longer than my arms will reach here, isn't it? And so if I lived in Jesus' day, I might communicate that with this poetic saying, my wife I love, my puppy I hate. Now, do I really hate my puppy? Do I want to harm my puppy? No, that's not the point of the saying. The point is, I would make a strong choice for my wife over my puppy, And that's the way this phrase is used in the scripture. So in the Old Testament, when we read about God, Jacob I love, but Esau I what? Hated, that's right. It doesn't mean that God had a malicious desire to harm Esau. It means that God made a strong choice of Jacob over Esau when it came to blessing and of Jacob's people over the Edomites when it comes to blessing. And so that is what we understand here with this passage is that Jesus is not saying, if you're going to be my follower, you need to really mistreat your family. You need to really harm your parents. You need to abuse your kids. That's not what he's saying here when he says this. What he is saying is, if you're going to be my follower, you need to be willing to make a strong choice for me, even over those who are closest to you in your life. How do I know that's what he means here? Because of the parallel passage. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Matthew records the same teaching from Jesus. 
Only instead of recording his exact words as Luke does, Matthew gives us a translation of what he said in order to make it easier for his readers to understand. And in Matthew 10.37, we read, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke actually gives us the word for word of the idiom. Matthew translates the idiom in order to make it understandable what is being said for his audience. Jesus says, you you can't ever choose family over me. I'm the priority. Please don't lose the weight of what he is saying here. Because it's easy for us to say, oh, well, he didn't really mean hate. Therefore, you know, I don't really have to take this seriously. No, 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 no. The weight of what Jesus is saying here by using this idiom is, the choice is to be so strong for me that your family isn't even close. Right? They're, they're not even close. That's the, the way that I am to be the priority in your life. Is that true in us? Uh, Kent Hughes, pastor at College Church in Wheaton for 40 years, uh, writes this in relationship to this passage. Some of us love our wives, husbands, and children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development athletically, culturally, artistically, socially, before their spiritual well-being. We fall short when we spend more time in the car and one day shuttling them to games and lessons than we do in a month in prayer for their souls. By comparison, our lives reveal that we hate God and love our children disproportionately and that we are not Jesus' disciples. In a Barna survey that I quoted here a couple of months ago, when churchgoers were asked, what is the number one priority in your life? 15%, 1-5% said, God is the most important priority in, in my life. In that same survey, 56% of people who attend church said, my family is my number one priority in my life. Is this a problem within the church? Yeah, it's a huge problem. That's why Jesus is so clear about addressing it. The idolatry of family is a significant challenge to his lordship and us being his disciples. I've seen parents choose their children and children's activities over the worship of Jesus. I've seen parents choose their kids' life choices over the teachings of Jesus. I've seen kids choose their parents' way of doing things and family traditions over Jesus' way of doing things. I have seen couples so intent on having a child that when that child wasn't provided for them, they abandoned Jesus because that desire for a child was stronger than Jesus' lordship in their life. I have seen men or women who have idolized finding a spouse to a degree that it has torn their life apart because it has been the priority instead of Jesus being the priority. Jesus wants people to know that following him is to be such a priority that our family pales in comparison. And that is what he means when he says the cost is hate your family. Hate your family. Cost number two that we see here, kill your dreams. Right? Cost number one, hate your family. Cost number two, kill your dreams. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, okay, now catch this, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
What does it mean to hate one's own life? To pick up your cross and die on it? What, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean to seek to harm yourself. It doesn't mean to seek to damage yourself any more than the hate of father and mother, uh, son and daughter, means that you are supposed to harm or seek to damage them. But like with the family, once again here we see that there is to be a strong choice. For the life that Christ calls us to in the kingdom over the life of dreams and desires that are a part of my selfish nature. There, there is to be no contest in that. And now Jesus' desires and Jesus' motivations are to be a part of, no, not to be a part, they are to dominate every decision in my life. And those dreams and desires that I've had since I was a child, those are to be killed, not just set aside, they are to be crucified on a cross. They are to be killed. And Jesus says this kind of practice of elevating the kingdom priorities of Jesus over my desires, it's a daily activity, isn't it? Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me to surrender all of my self-oriented dreams and desires to kill them in order to take on the dreams and desires of the king and the kingdom. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. You can laugh. That's fine. I love. <laughs> we got some late laughter. I love it. <laughs> Someone's computing a little slower than everybody else. I love basketball. That was part of the reason. But you guys, the, the real reason is I looked at professional basketball players and I said, if I'm a professional basketball player, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to live in a great house. I'm going to drive a really fancy car. My life is going to be comfortable. I'm going to marry this amazing woman. I'm going to, what else? What else comes with that? I'm going to be super popular. Everyone is going to idolize me, right? These were the things that really drove that desire to be a professional basketball player. The, the idols like money, comfort, possessions, prestige. Being a part of the kingdom of Jesus meant submitting all of those self-oriented desires, killing them, in order to take on the desires that Jesus had for my life. Now, now it became clear at an early age that due to talent and skill, I was not going to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> really early age. But my life still could have been motivated by all of those things that motivated my desire to be a professional basketball player. S still could have been motivated by comfort. Still could have been motivated by prestige or, or people thinking a lot of you. Still could have been motivated by all of those things that drove that. But being a part of the kingdom means submitting every one of those things, killing those self-oriented dreams and desires, and instead taking on the dreams and desires that the king has for us in our life. And Jesus says, you want to be my follower? Great, kill your dreams. That's a part of the cost. Kill all of those dreams and take on the dreams that I have for you and for your life. That's cost number two. Cost number three that Jesus outlines here is in the last verse of the passage, and that is, Kiss your possessions goodbye. Right? Kiss your possessions goodbye. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce 
all that he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, the Greek phrase translated all that he has is uperkanta. It is a word for your worldly wealth, all of your possessions. Right? Jesus is talking about the things we own and the money that we have here and renouncing it all if we are going to be his disciple. Now, like with our family and like with our life, Jesus isn't saying you need to seek to harm and do damage to your possessions. You should go home and take a sledgehammer and just start hitting stuff. That's not what he's saying here. You should go out to your fire pit and burn all your money and then burn all your possessions and then burn the fire pit in the fire pit, right? Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's absolutely saying is if you're going to be my follower, you are to renounce your control over every possession, over every dollar. You, if you're going to be my follower, you don't have anything anymore. It all now belongs to the king and should be used in the way that the king calls you to use it. You're going to be my follower. Renounce everything that you own, everything that you have, and recognize every bit of that now belongs to the king and to the kingdom and is to be used the way that the king calls you to use it. Is that the way you see your possessions and your finances? Do you see them as fully submitted, fully belonging to the king? Or do you see it as yours? There is, in my opinion, an easy way to tell where our heart is on this issue. And that is this. When you use your, those possessions, when you use your money, do you ask permission? Right? Do you ask permission? I don't use other people's stuff or spend other people's money without asking permission. Right? We, we don't do that. Now, if I consider it mine, I may feel the freedom to do that. But I don't use other people's stuff or spend other people's money without asking permission. And I can tell whether or not I have genuinely renounced everything that is mine, submitted it fully to the king and to his purposes by whether or not I ask permission. The times that we sit down and make out our budgets... Those are holy times of worship. I don't know if there is a more holy time of worship in our lives than when we sit down to make out our budgets. Because that is when we recognize who everything belongs to. And when we prayerfully spend time asking his permission to spend it in particular ways according to the kingdom. What astounding holy times of worship are our budgeting are the times when we make major purchases, are the times when we spend amounts of money because those are times we recognize it all belongs to you. This is yours, Jesus. You're the king and everything has been renounced if we're going to be your follower. Jesus wants to make sure that none of us enter into relationship with him believing or having seen only the benefits of being his disciple. He very clear, I want you to also see the cost so that you are making a fully informed decision that leads to long-term commitment and discipleship. And so he says, see the cost. What are the costs? Hate your family. Kill your dreams. Kiss your possessions goodbye. I, I, dare I say, you're not going to see this outline 
on uh, your local televangelist broadcast. Right? Joel Osteen is not going to give you this outline. Right? These, are, these are challenging truths. They're the costs of what Jesus says it takes in order to be his disciple. I have worked with so many parents, you guys, who just want their kids to see the benefits and don't teach them the costs because they just want their kid to pray the prayer and get through the door as if that's how it works. And so they only present the benefits without the cost of being Jesus' disciple. I have seen so many churches who only present the benefits and minimize or ignore the cost because they want the maximum number of people in the room on a Sunday morning. I have battled within my own heart what these calls mean on my life over and over again. The costs and the benefits of being a follower of Jesus And I think Jesus invites you to do the same in this passage today. Isn't that what he's calling us to do? To to make sure we've considered the cost. To consider it again today. Even as we have considered it in the past. Consider the cost. But my friends, while this passage emphasizes those costs, I don't want us to leave this morning without a sense of the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus. Because the scripture is quite clear, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And so let me give you a few of the benefits. This isn't going to be an exhaustive list of the benefits of following Jesus. But let me give you a few of the benefits of following Jesus that he gives us within his word. You ready for this? This is going to be fun. Number one, We receive God's forgiveness. You've been totally and completely and radically forgiven of all of your wrongdoing if you are a follower of Jesus. right? He he has forgiven your sins. Second, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you receive God's care. He's the God who comforts you in all of your affliction. In all of the mess of this world, in all of the hurt, he's the God who comes and brings you comfort. He's also the God who gives you purpose for your life if you are his disciple. He says the great purpose of life is becoming like Jesus, being made in the image of the Son. And now as his follower, you have an opportunity to be a part of that great life purpose, to be remade into God's image. On top of that, we get to participate in the great life mission, make disciples bringing others into a life of becoming like Jesus. We receive new family. We enter into a family where we become the children of God and brothers and sisters in this family, loving each other, supporting each other, and worshiping our great Father. We receive God's Spirit. We receive God's Spirit and His leading, His guiding, His conviction, His power for life in our lives if we are disciples of Jesus. And that same Spirit transforms us. As our minds are renewed, the Spirit of God is at work in that, transforming our lives, bringing about that character that God produces of love and joy and peace and on and on. Not only that, now because we are disciples of Jesus, we look forward to a perfect future in which when we see Him face to face, we will be made perfectly like Him and dwell with others whose character is perfectly like him. On top of that, we just studied in 1 Peter, we'll receive an astounding inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade, in which there will be infinite joy in the presence of God forevermore. 
And, and this is where all of this comes from in our future, we receive perfect intimacy with God. Just read this passage in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell with his people in the future in a way that we do not experience now in an intimacy that we cannot experience now. Jesus wants us to understand fully the cost of being his disciple, but he does also want us to fully understand the benefits and that the benefits outweigh the costs. This morning in the second service, we're going to have three people enter into these waters and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to spend my life following Jesus. I'm ready to run after him as his disciple. And we're thankful for that commitment. This morning, I guess I would ask you, has, has Jesus Christ, is he the focal point of your life? Right? So, so that family your own dreams and desires, your possessions and finances, all pale in comparison to the importance of our king and his kingdom. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to give you a moment in quiet silence and reflection to think about that. In a moment, uh, we're going to sing a song about our complete and total surrender to Jesus. Fits so well uh, with this passage. And as we do, we pledge ourselves anew to our King as the priority, the center of everything. We're also going to be taking an offering, and I'd invite the ushers to come forward at this time. And as we take that offering, we give, recognizing it all belongs to him. We have renounced our claim. This is yours, Jesus, and we give back to you some of what is yours, recognizing your goodness in our lives. Let me pray for us as we take our offering and enter into a time of praising God in song. Father, we are so thankful that you have called us to yourself, recognizing the benefits far outweigh the costs. The costs are everything, but the benefits are more. And we thank you for that. Lord, we, we love you, and we express that love for you now. In Jesus' name, amen.